Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So we're coming back to Mark chapter 3. Let's remind ourselves again why we're studying Mark. You know, there's a lot of people who try to, who will not really read the Word of God to take their impression, their knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. They would rather turn on the TV and watch a movie or something of that nature. They'll never pick up a Bible. It's important to go through a gospel because here we see the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is. That's what this study is all about. We want to see the Lord as he was in this world in the days of his humiliation. He's no longer in that state. He's ascended back to the Father's right hand. He's in a state of exaltation. And from there, he's going to come to judge the world. No longer is he a baby. But what an amazing story that is, which we considered last Sunday from Luke chapter 2. So join me in reading this next section of Mark 3, beginning at verse 7. Now, we had just read in the previous section that the Pharisees and the Herodians united to conspire against Jesus in order to kill him. And there's more than just ending his life, and that word destroy seems to have eternal ramifications because that's the word used in the New Testament for perishing, being lost forever. Not only they want to end Jesus' life, but to dispatch him into a state of condemnation because that's what they th- thought he deserved. So now, in view of their conspiracy and that his life is in danger, verse 7 says, you have to read it in context, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Obviously, the Sea of Galilee. So we're still in Galilee. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the clean, unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Originally, I thought I was going to unite this paragraph with the following one when he chooses his apostles, but I found there's really enough here for a sermon. So we're going to look at this by itself. This is an important and most interesting passage. Jesus is escaping uh, his enemies here, uh, not out of fear. The Lord Jesus Christ did not fear men. He did not fear physical suffering. When he went through his Gethsemane temptation and drinking the cup, that it was not the dread of crucifixion that he was shrinking back from. It was the fact he was going to be separated from his father. That was the dread that came over him in the garden. He did not fear the cross. And he's not fearing the Herodians and the Pharisees here that are conspiring against him. 
he is withdrawing out of wise discretion. Jesus was not someone who put himself deliberately in the way of danger. It's not his time yet to die. It's way off in the future yet. But here we see his growing popularity. This he could not escape. And he's not trying to escape it, by the way. He's not trying to get away from the people. But look at his popularity in verses 7 and 8. Notice the great crowds from Galilee. And then it mentions the great crowd again in the next verse. So twice we're told of the great crowds. Now this is a word that just simply means multitudes, myriads, and put a number on it. You have to imagine uh, that it was quite a crowd because here we have the most comprehensive statement in the Gospels of who constituted those crowds. Look at it. A great crowd followed. That does not mean that they were his disciples. Simply the word follow means they were tracking him down. They were coming up behind him, following him, but not in the sense of discipleship. So don't read that into it, that these are his disciples. But here we have a list of where they're from. First of all, Galilee, that's where he is. This is the immediate, this is Jewish territory. But then it mentions Judea, that's south, down where Jerusalem is. So you got Galilee and Judea. This is Jewish territory, so he's got a Jewish following. And it mentions Jerusalem by itself. Why Jerusalem? Why is Jeru- because this is the center of their religious life, the Jewish people. This is their capital, the city of Jerusalem. So there is the Jewish element among the crowd. But notice, it doesn't stop there. And Idumea, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, those two go together because now he's talking about on the east side of the Jordan River, which is a mix of Jewish and Gentile. Gentile, when we use the word Gentile, anybody who is not Jewish in the sense that they are a descendant of Abraham or the, and the 12 tribes of Israel, they are a Gentile in the word of God. Now, many Gentiles have, be, have become Jewish in that they have embraced the Jewish religion and live like Jewish people. But that does not make them Jewish in the sense that we're talking about now. So Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish from the 12 tribes of Israel is a Gentile. So this next group, Idumea, this is the same as Edom. Remember, this is where Esau settled, down south, east of the Dead Sea, about 120 miles from where Jesus is, actually, up in Galilee. And from beyond the Jordan, that area, uh, they say probably it refers to Perea, which is modern-day Jordan. So... Edom now is Saudi Arabia, partially, to give you some idea where we're talking about. So, Idumea and from beyond the Jordan is a mix of Jewish and Gentile regions. But then it adds, and from around Tyre and Sidon, that is north of Galilee on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, present-day Lebanon. And that is Gentile area. So people from, look at this, north, east, west, south, they're all there. They've all come to Galilee because they have heard about him. What is it that they heard? They heard that he was, what he was doing. Notice that, not what he was saying. There's not an emphasis on Jesus' words in Mark's gospel. And it wasn't, their attraction wasn't because of of the things he was saying, it's because of his works, his miraculous works. They heard he was healing people, 
and there's sick people all over. And they came to get healed. You know, this is, this is hundreds and thousands of people. So we have to use our imagination a little bit to just get an idea. When, when did we see crowds like this in my lifetime that mobbed people? It was when the Beatles came to the United States in the 60s. John F. Kennedy was mobbed like this by people as well. It doesn't happen very often that there's somebody that popular in society where people are rushing to see them, to touch them. So this is a situation here. It's local people, it's far off, it's Jew and Gentile. Notice that the Lord Jesus Christ was despised by the religious establishment, but there was an attraction, a magnetism that he had with the common people. Note that. That's that's really important about him, who he appealed to. The religious people were jealous of him because of his popularity and the way he taught. He did not teach as the scribes who quoted others, remember? He didn't teach like that. He didn't say, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so said this. No, he said, I say unto you. He taught from his own authority. This was something unique. It was powerful. It made a deep impression on those that listened to him. So they heard what he was doing. And this is what they were responding to. It was the report of the wondrous works, and it spread like wildfire. Well, people have been attracted to Jesus Christ throughout the centuries. There's no question about it that he has been the most amazing person in human history. There's been no other person like him. He is worshipped by two billion people. Imagine that. Two billion worship him. Throughout human history, they've been drawn to him, and for many different reasons. They're drawn to him because of his miraculous works. They're drawn to him because of what he said. And let me put it like this. Jesus Christ said things that no one else could say or would say. Now, if God became a man... We presuppose that because this is what the New Testament is telling us. If God became a man, we would expect him to say things that are very unique, that no one else has ever said or could say. Who could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes to the Father except by me. What a claim. I remember talking to a a pastor many, many years ago, and met him in Santa Barbara, and we had lunch together. He was from down here. And he was telling me his testimony, how he had been into Eastern religion. And into Eastern religion, he took a, a mantra, or, yeah, I think that's the word, something that you repeat over and over again in order to, like, meditate and, and free your mind from any other thought. His mantra happened to be John 14, 6. Now, I can't remember why he took John 14, 6, that is the verse I just quoted, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was his mantra. And he told me, he said, he was, one day as he was saying that verse to himself, he started to think about it. What he was saying and who was saying it. It's like the light switch in his head was like being flipped on. And he became illuminated. This was the Holy Spirit giving him understanding of the Word of God. And this led to his conversion. He became a Christian by having that verse resounding in his thoughts. So people followed, are attracted to Jesus because of his miraculous works, uh, his teaching, the uniqueness of what he said. Uh, His amazing character. If God became a man, we would expect him to live a life that was just amazing in terms of it being a perfect life. And this is 
exactly what we read about him in the New Testament. It says over and over again, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's called the righteous one. Jesus looked his enemies in the face and said to them one day, which of you convicts me of sin? And they had nothing to say. When they tried to bring charges against him to Pilate, in order to make Pilate take notice that he was somebody really a bad character who needed to be put to death, the best they could come up with is he claims to be a king. Nothing else. That was the only thing they could say. And, of course, Pilate had to pay attention to that because uh, this perhaps presented a rival to Caesar Tiberius. They could not bring out any of his sins. He had no sin. And this is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Listen to Paul's language. He knew no sin. Jesus had no acquaintance with sin. He was perfect. And we would expect him to have to be perfect. He could not have stood in our place and been our sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God in our place, had he been imperfect and been a sinner like us. Then he would have needed redemption. But because he was the perfect man, the ideal man, behold the man, Pilate said when he brought Jesus out crowned with thorns, having been scourged. Behold the man. This is the man, the perfect man, the ideal specimen of humanity that we should have all been had Adam not fallen in the garden. So people are drawn to Jesus because of his marvelous character, his wondrous life, the perfection of his life, his kindness, his compassion. We see that in our passage. But the real thing that attracts us to Jesus Christ was his sacrifice. And this is exactly what Jesus said. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And when he said that, that's in John 12, verse 32. If I be lifted up, that means lifted up on the cross. The cross is a powerful magnet that draws people to Jesus. There's no greater demonstration of love like that, that he died for his enemies. That is very rare, Paul says in Romans 5. Very seldom does it happen that someone will give their life for an enemy. But this is precisely what Jesus did in our place. So we are drawn to him because of his death. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the one that we need. He's the Savior of the world. So for those reasons, people are attracted to Christ. And we see that attraction here in his ministry in Galilee, that they were seeking him, wanting to touch him, because he had heard of his marvelous works. Okay, now secondly... I want you to see a scene of great commotion here in verses 9 and 10. This is, this is something that we try to describe. There's people from all over the then known east, the immediate area of Israel, that are, have come to pursue Jesus. Now look at how it describes what's going on. Verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him. Now, he doesn't use the boat. Why did he want a boat? Because there was a possibility they're going to, like, mob him and crush him. This happens in mobs. People get worked up. People get excited. People get trampled. And die in mobs. 
And there's many, many people here, great crowds that have come. And Jesus is taking some precaution here. He's not, he's acting wisely. He's not trying to escape them. He's just saying, let's have one ready in case it gets so bad. We can get into the boat and you know, still can help the people, but we're not going to get mopped and crushed by the crowd. It's pretty interesting. He told them to have a boat ready because of the crowds, lest they crush him. It means press on him. So it's mob, mobbery. And here's why. Here's why they're pressing to get to him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here I want to draw your attention to in this wording. Um, First of all, I said he never did use the boat. He will use a boat in chapter 4, chapter 6, and chapter 8, but not here. He does not use a boat. So here is the reason that explains his growing and pressing crowd. He had healed many. It's an understatement. My belief is that everyone who came to him for healing was healed. I don't think anyone went away disappointed. Just knowing who Jesus Christ is. That everyone got what they came for. He had healed many. Now notice this. So that all who had diseases. The word for diseases is the word scourge. Scourges. It's interesting that that's the Greek word used. A scourge is the whip, which was a form of punishment. Jesus was scourged by Pilate. He was whipped, brutally whipped. But here, disease and sickness is called a scourge. That is a reminder to us from the Word of God that sickness, disease, and death ultimately came because of man's fall in the garden and came as a punishment for sin. This is why we get sick. This is why people get diseases that eventually end their life. It was not like this in the beginning. This came about as a result of the fall of man. Now, it doesn't mean that when you get sick that you're being punished. I'm not suggesting that, though it would seem like that's what I'm saying. No, just I'm speaking generally of these things that they are present in our world and they afflict mankind because of the fall. And this came as a result of man's sin against God and God penalized man with death as a result of his disobedience. And all the things attending to death, sickness, disease, and so on. Every time you get sick, it's a reminder that, we're, that you live in a fallen world. This is how you should see it. That's how I mean it. I'm not saying that you're to think, God has punished me right now. He must be angry at me. I'm not saying that. Now, sometimes people do have bad things happen to them as a consequence of sin. That does, that's also true. But we don't need to say every time that we are sick or if we were to get a disease that God is uh, punishing us, that we're being judged by him. Now, notice... uh, that they pressed around him. Literally, that is, they fell on him. (laughs) They fell on him. So you've got a crowd of people. They are pushing. They're shoving in their excitement to get to Jesus. You just can see this, what's going on. And they're literally falling on him because they have it in their mind that if they can just 
rather than waiting for him to touch them, because they've heard that he touches people and they get well, they're just falling on him. Now, falling on Jesus, there's a good spiritual uh, teaching in that, actually, that I want to turn over for a moment. Because actually, falling on Jesus is a picture of faith. Not saying they, yeah, they would have to believe if they're falling on him that they're going to get healed. So there's an expression of faith here in these people. But actually, that's a good literal picture of what it means to believe in Christ. The Bible uses that language, to believe on him or upon him. This is how it is in the original language. Believe upon Jesus. Hmm, believe upon him. Trust upon him. Rest upon him. You all know what a recumbent bicycle is. I've used this illustration before. You know, when you see a guy riding a recumbent bicycle, he's really kicked back in it. He's sitting back. His legs are out in front of him, and he's pedaling out here. He's in a very relaxed position on a recumbent bicycle. It's a completely different approach to riding a bike. All his weight really is on that, that bike, and he's just really he's relaxing. He's enjoying his bike ride. He's not racing. He's just enjoying relaxing on his bicycle. Well, it's interesting that the old theologians use the word recumbency as a synonym for faith in God. Think of that. This is, this is how they, got, they communicated what it means to believe in Christ. Recumbency means that you lean upon a thing. You lean on it. You fall flat on it. Spurgeon even used that language in his sermons. Fall flat on Christ and you're saved. Fall flat on him. What does, he, what does he mean? He means just trust him, rely upon him, depend upon him. Believing in Christ means more than simply acknowledging that he was a real historical person who went to the cross and, and did the things that the Bible says that he did. I mean, it's important. We must believe that. That's important to believe that, but then you take it a step further. What do I do with that belief? I rest on him. I fall flat on him, meaning he is my support. He's the only person I'm trusting in and relying on for salvation. The famous missionary John G. Patton, who went to the New Hebride Islands in the South Pacific in the 19th century, spent 50 years there ministering to people there. And he was doing Bible translation. He was trying to get across what it means to believe in Christ. He wanted to put it in, in their language. So he had one of the men that was helping him with translation who knew some English and he sat in a chair, and he's, he asked this man that was helping him with translation, what am I doing right now? He's sitting in a chair. And he gave him a word that explained that. Then Patton picked his legs up off of the ground while he's still sitting in the chair. He lifted his legs off the ground. He said, what am I doing now? And he gave him a different word different idea. He said that that's the word I'm going to use for faith, to put all my weight on him. So again, another illustration of this point, falling flat on Christ. The crowds were falling on Jesus because they wanted to be healed. Now, let me move on. So th this, is, this is kind of a pathetic scene, if you think about it. It must have caused the Lord Jesus Christ some little bit of pain to have the people act like this. But there's no indication that he, he got angry with them, that he was annoyed. He, there's no harsh words here. He was kind and patient through it all. 
You know, those who seek Christ will encounter him. Those who seek Jesus will have an encounter with him. And I don't mean encounter in a literal, physical sense where he will be standing before you. I'm talking about a spiritual encounter. If you seek Christ in prayer, you keep praying, keep asking him. You will have an encounter with him that will transform you. This is his great work. He does not disappoint. He said, keep on asking and you will receive. This is his promise. Keep on knocking and it will be opened unto you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Okay, now thirdly, in verses 11 and 12, you know, we're changing gears here, subject-wise. The reaction of the demons in Christ's presence. Because now there's thousands of people there. And they're pushing and shoving and they're excited and they want to get to Jesus at any cost. They don't want to miss out on being healed. And in this group of people, there's many of these crowds, there's going to be many people that are possessed. You've heard that word. There is a reality in the spiritual world that we call demon possession. It was very common in the first century. Jesus encountered it many times. We will encounter it in chapter 5 in an amazing story of a man that was possessed by many demons. Now notice that they're called here unclean spirits. This is the most common description uh, what is a demon? So the whole population of angels that God created before he created man, he created angels. And there were myriads of them. We don't know how many. Un- the Bible says mil- millions of millions, tens of millions of angels. There was a rebellion among them, led by Lucifer, the son of the morning. And one-third of the angelic race followed Lucifer in rebelling. Lucifer wanted to be like God. This is where the demons came from. Demons are fallen angels, so they're no longer holy. The angels that did not fall are called the elect angels or holy angels. The others now have a different character. And they're called here unclean, filthy. Now, that describes the character of the demon himself, that he's filthy and unclean, but also what he urges and compels those that he possesses to be involved in. So it has to do with the sin that they propel people into. And they're sometimes described, uh, Paul encountered a spirit of divination in Acts 16, in Philippi. There's another description. That had to do with a demon that particularly specialized in the occult world. Foretelling the future and all of that. Divination. Seeking secret knowledge. Notice who it came from. It came from evil angels. So anybody involved in the occult world, reading tarot cards, holding seances in order to contact the dead and all of that, that is something the Word of God strictly forbids in the Old Testament and assigns it to the spirits of darkness. They're the ones that drive it. So these are the evil fallen angels, agents of evil. Notice what they did in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They fall down before him. So they fell down before Jesus in the person that they possess. 
So the person who is possessed by the unclean spirit, they fall down. But Mark is telling us who actually is falling down. It's the the demon cringing in fear, acknowledging they're conquered, they're subservient to him. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is their creator. So they're in the presence of the one who made them and can destroy them at any moment. So they fall down before him. And notice what they do. The text says they cried out. But you know what the word is? It means they screamed it. So you can just hear this. Because a demon can speak through the vocal cords of the person that they possess. It does not sound like that person's voice. It's a completely different voice. And shrieked, screamed out. What was it they screamed? You are the Son of God. Well, they notice that the demons are orthodox. The demons have a correct doctrinal theology. They know what the truth is. And they acknowledge the truth. Simply acknowledge the truth is not enough. The demons believe and tremble, James says. But here they acknowledge the true identity of the person in whose presence they are. Now, whenever Jesus is called the Son of God in the New Testament, there's a few things that we need to think of and connect with that title. Now, I have a son. He's visited here a few times. He's going to be 47 in a couple of months. Imagine that. I have a son that's 47. That son has my nature. He's a part of me. He's a human being. He has the nature of a man. So, I mean, on the surface, when it says Jesus is the son of God, we are immediately to make that connection that he shares the same nature as God himself. This is a proclamation of his deity when he's called the Son of God. doesn't mean he's a lesser being. As the Jehovah's Witnesses say, oh, he's not Jehovah, he is Michael the Archangel. He's a God. He's the highest creation of God. God created him, and then he created everything else. This is their belief, the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They reject the Trinity, that God consists of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right off, this is the highest title that we can attribute to the Lord Jesus Christ that expresses his essential nature as God. Secondly, it speaks of his unique relationship to God as his Father. He is the Son of God in a sense that no other person or being is. Now, the angels are called sons of God. Do you know that? The book of Job tells us that. That on the morning of creation, the sons of God sang for joy. That is, the angels. The angels witnessed the week of creation. And they rejoiced in God's creative work. Tells us that in the book of Job. But they're called the sons of God. When you become a believer, you become a son or daughter of God. But Jesus Christ is the son of God in a sense that no other is. You know how I'm explaining it now. He shares the nature of God. Now, we do receive a new nature when we become children of God, a nature like God in in a certain sense, but not that we become deity. And this is exactly what Jesus was charged with in John 5, that he said that God was his father, And in their understanding, this made him equal with God. That's John 5.18. So when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, or claimed to be that God was his Father, he was claiming equality with God. 
But thirdly, this is a Trinitarian title, Son of God, and places him right in the Trinity. Places him in the Trinity. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, how? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There it is there. The triune nature of God. He's the Son. The Son came down from heaven and became a man for our redemption, for us and for our salvation, as we saw last week. Now, in response to the demons screaming out, you are the Son of God, notice Jesus' response to them. Verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Well, you would think that he would want them to be shouting it all over and telling everybody. Oh, no. (laughs) No. There was a time for Jesus' self-disclosure of who he was. He did it in private a few times with individuals, but not publicly. The time for his public proclamation of who he was came when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry. Then he accepted the public praise and acknowledgement of who he was. But at this point, this is why as we go through Mark, we're going to read more than just this instance. We saw it in the previous chapter, chapter 1, that Jesus squelches these public announcements of who he was. He commanded the demons to silence because it was not the time for his making known who he is. This disclosure of his divine sonship It violated, and I'm quoting here from a commentary, it violated the character and the timing of his self-revelation in which there was restraint and concealment, if you followed that. But also we can can read into that, that we see it elsewhere, that Jesus did not want the public proclamation of his identity like this, it could have invited unnecessary trouble for him when it came to the government, to the political realm in which he operated. Jesus did not have a confrontation with the political leaders of Rome. He was silent before Herod Antipas, and he spoke very little to Pilate. And those were the few times that he encountered Rome. Because Jesus Christ was not a political revolutionary. This is wrong to describe him like that. He did not come to shake up the government. And I give you illustrations of that. When they, they tried to trap him about taxes, it, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They asked him, trying to trap him. He said, show me a coin. And they gave him a denarius that had the image of Caesar on it. It says, whose image is on the coin? They said, Caesar's. And his great answer was, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. They had nothing to say in response to that. So he didn't come to declare some revolution against the Roman government, don't pay your taxes, and so on. Another instance, they came in John 6. He perceived that the crowd was so worked up after the feeding of 5,000 people, he could see they were getting excited about making him a king. And it said and they were going to take him by force to be a king. And the text says in John 6.15 that when he perceived that, that they were about to come and take him as a king, he withdrew. <laughs> he withdrew. He didn't want them to take him by force and make him a king. 
to oppose Rome. And then one other illustration in the great conversation that he had with Pontius Pilate, because the one thing Pilate had to pay attention to was the claim that he was a king. So the first thing Pilate asked him is, are you the king of the Jews? And we know how that conversation went. It's an amazing conversation. It's recorded in John chapter 19. And Jesus asked, he said to Pilate, he said, did you, are you asking me that on your own or did others tell you this about me? So eventually he told Pilate, and Pilate said, so you are a king? Question. And Jesus said, yes, essentially, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. So he clarified with Pilate that his kingdom was not in opposition to Rome, per se. He said his, if he was a, a king of an earthly kingdom, his servants would be fighting for him. They'd have weapons, and they would be defending him. No, he, he conquers how, according to what he tell, tells Pilate? How does he conquer human hearts? With truth. That's his weapon, the truth. I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. This is his weapon. Everyone that is of the truth hears his voice. So there's, there's things in those illustrations that indicate beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was not a political revolutionary. His mission in this world transcended politics. He was here for other reasons, namely our salvation. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not withdraw from the crowds. He withdrew from a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Herodians, conspiring. It was not time for him to be put to death and destroyed. So he just left that, but he did not withdraw from the crowds. And that's something we should note about following Christ that Christians are not called to withdraw from the world. You know, the, there, there have been people throughout history who, many, I'm sure, faithful followers of Christ, but they thought that they should withdraw from the world and become a monk and become a nun or something of that nature. And then, you, and then they live in isolation. So the only people that they have contact with generally are those that are the same stripe. This is not what Jesus calls his followers to. He doesn't call us to withdraw from the world. In fact, his prayer for the disciples was the exact opposite in John 17. He says, I do not ask, this is to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you preserve them from the evil one. That was his prayer. We're going to be in the world, but he prays for our protection from the devil, from evil. That's verse 15. Then verse 18 he says, As you have sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. So God does not, we are not as Christians, we are not to withdraw into place of isolation. This is not what God calls us to. Jesus did not withdraw from the crowds. His disciples were not called to that either. So we've got to guard against the temptation to, you know, kind of retire and retreat into our own little comfort zone of Christian living. Sometimes that's how I feel personally. So I'm talking to myself here. You know, our only friends, our only circle of friends are fellow believers. We don't know any unsaved people. This is, this is not to be salt and light as his followers. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us in there with the, those that don't know him as well. And I just want to end on this note. 
So don't, don't simply think of, have, I want you to have correct views of Jesus Christ and believe the right thing about him, but take it a step further to the place where you can say, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my God. I like Thomas's example. The man who's called Doubting Thomas. You've all heard about him. Remember, he was the one who did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The, all, he was gone that Sunday night when Jesus showed up in the, uh, in the upper room and appeared to them after his resurrection. Thomas was not with them. So when Thomas came around, they said, you, you'll never know, never guess who we saw. Jesus was here. Now, I'm reading my own words into it at that point, but that's kind of the idea. And he said, I, 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 I can't believe it. I will not believe unless I can put my hand in, into the nail prints in his, in his hands. And, and so the next Sunday, Thomas was there and Jesus came. And Thomas, all he could say, when Jesus said, Thomas, reach forth your hand and put it in the nail prints. Reach here and into the side, the wound in his side, which Thomas did not do. He didn't do either of those. He simply said, my Lord and my God. That's like the greatest confession. He called Jesus God. And he called him his Lord. And what's important there are those personal pronouns. He just didn't say, oh, Lord God, Lord and God. He said, my Lord, my God. This is where you want to be, to confess Christ as your Lord, your God. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.